This is the Humans of Gaming Podcast, an open and honest conversation about games, life, and belief. Pedro Dixon here, co-host of Humans of Gaming and chief content nerd at Love Thy Nerd. This is part two of a three-part series of podcasts that feature rapid-fire game designer interviews. These are all three- to seven-minute interviews. Uh, They're kind of miniature versions of what we try to do on the podcast. Um, And you're going to hear from some really incredible and interesting and fascinating game designers from all over the world, from Sweden and Poland and South Africa and, uh, of course, the United States as well. And yeah, I think you'll really enjoy this. You're going to hear from Matt Rhodes, who's the lead designer on Banner Saga 3. You're going to hear from Casper, who's the lead designer on Phantom Doctrine, this really cool new... Uh, Cold War thriller slash strategy game. Um, You're going to hear from Ben Myers, who's from South Africa and making a game called Semblance. So, um, so yeah, you'll hear from some really creative, fascinating uh, people, and I hope that you really enjoy this. Of course, uh, Chris Walton is not with me this week, but we'll be back on the podcast soon. Also want to remind you that these were recorded at a convention, and so bear with the audio. I uh, hope you enjoy this. Thanks so much for listening to Humans of Gaming. So tell me your name again. Kasper Shimtuk. And what is your role on, uh, on Phantom? Uh, I'm the lead designer. Okay, cool. And uh, yeah, so tell me, give me the quick pitch. What is... What is... So uh, Phantom Doctrine is a conspiracy thriller, a turn-based tactical conspiracy thriller. It's a uh, turn-based combat and stealth and world map and like spy network management thing with board game investigation with uh, documents connected with a red string. Yeah. And one of the unique elements you showed me earlier was that you can um, you can turn people that are on the enemy side over to your side and the other the other the opposite of that can happen to you in certain missions. Right. Uh, yeah, one of the facilities you can build in your hideout is a MK Ultra facility. And as you as you progress, you unlock new treatments like interrogation, brainwashing, or a control phrase. A control, like, control phrase is something uh, that you install in an agent, let them go, and the next time you you can call on the control phrase and they'll yeah. switch sides. Um, but the same thing can happen to the agents you live behind. And that get kidnapped by conspiracy operatives. Um, you can have your own agent stolen in the yeah. middle of the mission. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you also showed me some. Um, you can experiment on your soldiers to give them new abilities and things with with different drugs, and but that can go poorly as well, right? Yeah, you can you can try and create a simple soldier with a lot of chemistry, but you can um, get the job botched just as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, it seems like you're having a lot of fun with ideas that floated around during the Cold War and stuff. What, what made you guys want to uh, tackle that era and, and do a, a game like this, a, a strategy game in, that, in that, that era and that time? Okay, so we wanted to, uh, to do a tactical game of spies, but we 
um, we need to, to like elevate it to a different, stronger level. And like Cold War sounds like the best, the best era for spies, yeah. basically. Like funny thing is we we weren't exactly sure if um, nowadays people will still get it, like get yeah. it, if they still understand the Cold War thing. But well, more or less, luckily. I think the second one is coming. Yeah. And it's like basically here. Yeah. So like the assassinations of spies are uh, are the headlines again. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, if you had to narrow it down to one thing, what do you hope players gain from their experience playing your game? Paranoia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's basically it. Yeah. Like all the systems accumulate towards a feeling of paranoia. That's okay. that's exactly what I yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. And uh, last question I like to ask game designers is, why do you make games? What drives you to do this? Like, I don't really remember. I have this obsession ever since I was like six years old, and I can't really tackle it. But yeah. that would be it. I, I can't imagine doing anything else. Yeah. Like, I can't do anything else yeah. anymore, at least. <laughs> yeah. So there's, there's no turning back. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And uh, you mentioned earlier that you and, and your team are from Warsaw, is that right? Yep, Warsaw yeah. and Poland. Yep. And there's a, um, seems like a exploding game development scene in Warsaw. What's it like to be a part of that scene? Well, it's a, it is a big community, but a very tightly knit community. Yeah. Like, we know all each other and we like, communicate each other very well. Um, there's a lot of flow of uh, knowledge and talent. A lot of events where we share our knowledge and experiences to help each other with our game. Like a lot of one of the greatest designers in Warsaw help us uh, latest yeah. the doctrine. So that's invaluable. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it's nice to have that community and feel like even though you're you're sort of competing against each other, you're helping each other as well. That's really neat. That's yeah. cool. Well competing isn't that well the market is so huge and there are yeah. so many ways like we kind of compete for the talent, but yeah. that's it. Yeah, but yeah. that's like um, we try to make sure everyone's happy. So, like, even if uh, even if an employee uh, goes to a different company, that's usually for the better for everyone. Yeah. Because they they can use his talent better usually. Sure. Yeah, that's cool. Well, uh, Phantom Doctrine looks great. When can uh, we expect to see it? Do you have a release window? Uh, this year, okay. PC and consoles. Cool. Well, uh, thanks so much. I really enjoyed looking at it. Yeah. Thanks. And Dom, what's your last name? Bellinger. And where are you from? Oakland, California. Okay. Is that where your whole team's from? No, it's we're pretty spread out. I, I'm in. I'm there. Zach is from Maryland, and Theo is in France. Cool. And how did you get into game design? Uh, I was in the game industry as kind of a studio engineer for a long time, and. It was, it's a hard and sometimes frustrating experience working for other people. And I, I left games, and then I wanted to get back in. And being in the indie seemed really incredible. And it, it is, honestly. It's, it's a really amazing experience. It's hard, but it, it's worth it. So. Yeah. And uh, give me the quick pitch on Black Future 88. Okay. Black Future 88 is a brutal synth punk action roguelike. Uh, it's a platformer. You only have 18 minutes to live. You climb a procedural tower that upgrades as you do as well. Yeah, and uh, you did a lot of the music. You were telling me that earlier. Uh, all the music, yes. All the music. Okay, nice. And your band um, is doing the soundtrack. Okay. We're uh, we're doing a special soundtrack release. We're doing uh, the OST, which will have all the just 
remixed songs and then a Songs from the Black Future companion album, which will have, uh, they'll be a little bit rearranged uh, to accommodate vocals and live drums. Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, it's got a really unique aesthetic and, and uh, I mean, just the whole aesthetic, the music, the, the animation, the feel. Uh, what what inspired you guys to with the look and feel of the game? Uh, for me, it's not so much games, it is movies. Uh, I've I played a lot of games, but I don't really play a lot these days, honestly. Uh, yeah. I really like late 80s films, though, like uh, The Running Man and Robocop 2, especially. Yeah. Uh, as bad as a movie as it is, it has a very special place in my heart. Yeah. Uh, my friend's dad took me to see it in the theater, and he really shouldn't have, because I was like eight. And there's some <laughs> bad shit in that movie, yeah. but it's great. Yeah, that's cool. And uh, if you had to narrow down to one thing that you hope players gain from their time with Black Future 88, what would it be? That's a really good one. Um, you know, the, the demo doesn't show it, but it's actually a really rich cast of characters, and I would hope that they walk away with somehow more empathy. That, yeah. I think that's... I don't know if the game always satisfies that, but to me, it's personally important. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. And uh, last question I like to ask developers is, and designers is, what, why do you make games? What drives you to do this? Um, it's an incredible process, and... I really think you get to solve really hard problems and work with really great people. I've worked in fintech and other industries, and games by far are my favorite thing to work on. Yeah, so. yeah, that's cool. Well, it looks it looks fantastic, and I really enjoyed uh, really enjoyed my time with it. So thanks for your time, man. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, I'm Ben Myers, co-founder of Independent Game Studio. Nyamakop. It's a portmanteau word. Uh, in Swahili, nyama means meat, and in Afrikaans from South Africa, kop, K-O-P, means head. So it just means meathead. <laughs> <laughs> and are you from South Africa? Yeah, we are. We are. The co-founders uh, Kenyan slash South African, and I'm South African. Yeah. Okay. And uh, how did you get into making games? Uh, I actually studied a game design degree in South Africa, and. Uh, that's pretty much where it started. And then our final year project was this game. And uh, our external examiner was um, this ex-Naughty Dog developer who had been a technical art lead on Uncharted and The Last of Us. And he saw the game and he was like, you should make this into a full game. And we were like, okay. So that's, that's pretty much how we got into making games full time. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's cool. So tell me about Semblance. Give me the quick pitch. What makes it unique? So Semblance is a Clay-Doh platformer. Can't say the thing I want to say, but you know what I'm talking about. Right. Um, and it just allows you to morph and change the platforms themselves. There's a lot of ideas in puzzle platformers that have been done before, but no one's really said, what if the platforms themselves are something you could change, shift, and morph, right? Every other game in the genre has just been a running and jumping on platformer. Right. So we're the first real pure platformer. <laughs> which yeah. you can actually morph and change the platforms. Yeah, yeah. So I started with this sort of student idea. Um, how has that morphed since then? Like uh, any, anything that's changed really since then that you're proud of? Yeah, it's changed massively. I mean, the game used to actually just be about the character changing shape. Um, but we wanted the world to feel soft and squishy and bouncy like the character. Uh, but when we were trying to do that, we had a bug where every time you touched the platform, it would go down lower and lower and lower. And then the programmer tweeted a GIF of it and it kind of like got popular for some reason because it was a bug. And I sent him a message saying, we need to make this the whole game. 
So the whole mechanic of this deforming world kind of came from a bug from our student project. Uh, and we've kind of just stuck with this mindset of like being aware of the fun coming from unexpected places. Uh, and that's kind of it. Like the whole game has changed completely from when yeah. we were students. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, I would say probably fun coming from unexpected places is a particularly unique uh, aspect of video games. Yeah. Would you agree? Totally. I mean, there's a video game called Tribes. I'm not sure a lot of people know it. It's like an yeah. online multiplayer shooter. And it's a game where you kind of have the sliding mechanic where you slide and gain speed infinitely. And that's uh, another mechanic that just kind of came from a bug. I think um, that's kind of the aspect of systems in games. Like you, you as the designer, if you're working with an experimental enough mechanic, don't actually know all the potential things that can happen in that game because it's just too complex. It's too infinite for you to understand. So I think video games have this potential for the person who created it to not even completely grasp the potential things that can happen. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and uh, if you had to nail, or if you had to narrow down to one thing that you hope players gain from their experience playing Semblance, what would it be? Uh, I think it would just be a general grasp of lateral thinking. Like in Semblance, you can morph and change the platforms which is you know a core aspect of the way the genre of platformers works right but because we shift it and change it we force them to think in completely different ways so I think if you can uh, overcome your uh, assumptions about like you know a video game genre you can also help you think laterally about other things in the world so I would hope through people playing semblance they can think more laterally about the world in general and assumptions they have and you know abandon them when they make sense to or you know in innovate and assimilate other assumptions that you know can be tweaked so just yeah. a general expansion of lateral thinking I would say yeah yeah excellent um, and last question what drives you to make games why do you do this Oh, it's a tough question. I think uh, partly because we're in South Africa and no one else is doing it and we're kind of like breaking ground and being the first people to do it. Um, depending on when this game ships, we might be the first African-made game to ever ship on a Nintendo uh, platform ever. So like, it's really motivating to you know, be driving a space for the whole continent for. And when we travel, we try and evangelize other African game creators as much as possible. People from Cameroon and Egypt and Nigeria. So like making games is kind of about, you know, working with this amazing new medium that's changing and, you know, it's kind of in its golden age at the point at right now, figuring out what it means. But it's also just about evangelizing uh, a diverse set of creators in the medium as well. So yeah. And uh, when can people look to play Semblance? To, uh, when is it coming yeah. out? So Semblance is coming out on Nintendo Switch, PC, and Mac on Steam uh, this year, 2018. Sometime. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Cool. Well, I really enjoyed looking at it. Thanks. Cool. So I'm here with Emil Nielsen, right? That's right. And uh, you are the... What's your role on Flipping Death? Uh, I'm a game designer, so... Um, my role is like I, I build the levels and I, I like design all of the mechanics and uh, yeah. like I work with the, our uh, creative director to like come up with puzzles and stuff yeah, yeah. for the game. So cool. yeah, and you said uh, so. Zoink Games is based out of uh, out of Sweden, um, and uh, yeah, what what kind of makes your games unique? Uh, I think from I think we try to do like. Um, 
what, what we often try to focus on the games we work on, we have tried to like uh, work with like um, work humor into our games, yeah. <laughs> uh, which I think is often quite hard, but uh, we try to do it and like come up with a lot of like characters. We have our creative director, he really likes to work with like uh, uh, come up with funny concepts for characters and then we like often try to like uh, work them into the game and uh, yeah. it's quite a I don't know it's it's a it's a fun way to work yeah, <laughs> I yeah. think yeah give me the quick pitch about flipping death what what is it and what makes it unique yeah so flipping death is kind of like a platformer adventure game uh, where you uh, where the main character dies really early on and you get to uh, become the temp for uh, for death uh, and the past the game rolls around like you trying to figure out what's happened to you and also like trying to solve various puzzles for like weird ghosts and stuff who have problems and then you the main thing is that you can possess characters that are alive uh, and all, all every character has like a very unique like uh, power that they can do basically so there's a lot of like exploration of trying to find out what the living characters can do to like interact with the real world because you're dead and you cannot do anything. Yeah. Uh, so I think this, uh, yeah, so it's kind of like a unique kind of like platform puzzle yeah. story game. If you had to narrow it down to one thing, what do you hope players gain from their time playing Flipping Death? Uh, yeah, oh, that's a hard one. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it's like, for some reason, I think like working with such a core concept with death. I think I, th I think it's nice to like work because um, the whole game is kind of like how everybody deals with death in a way, but it's very humorous. Uh, so I think there's a lot of like I think it's a very light-hearted game about like a very serious subject, and uh, so like at least like conceptually, that's what I hope people kind of take away with it to like find some kind of like comfort and humor in it and be able to laugh about it in a way. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Uh, and uh, last question I like to ask designers is, you know, why do you make games? What drives you to do this? Uh, I, I think that honestly, like one of the main things is like going to places like this and like see actual people enjoying what you're doing. Uh, I think that's one of like my favorite things because like, yeah. Especially now when everything's digital, it's really sometimes really hard to know that people are actually playing your games. But then you come and meet them, and people tell you why they love your stuff sometimes, and it's a really great feeling, I think. Yeah, that's cool. Well, thanks so much for your time. It was uh, great meeting you. Yeah. I'm here with Rowan Albers. And uh, you are one of the developers behind Descenders. Yes. Uh, so yeah, tell me a little bit about Descenders, what makes it unique. So Descenders is extreme procedural free riding. So uh, tracks get generated, and we try to like bring like... And when you say free riding, you mean mountain biking. Downhill, downhill, mount mountain, biking. downhill yeah. mountain biking. And what we try to do is like get the actual tension of like extreme sports, so make it like a genuine extreme sports game. So there's health, there's like gnarly jumps, there's fast speeds, trying to make it as... as like have it packed the most adrenaline as possible, basically. Yeah. It's like yeah. extreme, basically. Yeah, and so with that health and the procedural nature of the game, you've made it to where players have to sort of map out their course and think about taking risks versus being safe and kind of... Uh, yeah, that's 100% yeah. correct, yeah. Yeah, it's all about like 
getting to the end of the environment and making it to that boss jump and by picking like the levels that suit you or the bonus objective you, you feel like you can do. Like it's always calculating, like, can I make this jump or is a backflip worth it for me now? So it's always like making uh, the right decisions at the right time, like spot on, like moment to moment, like good decisions basically. Like, yeah, yeah. am I going to make this backflip? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, so if you had to narrow it down to one thing, what do you hope players gain from their experience playing your game? Um, I think it's the, the fun thing, what, what happens is like, let's do a quick session. And then they, they start a quick session and they're like, yeah, one more, one more. Ah, come on, I, I need to make this job. Okay, one more. So they just keep coming back to it. And, and that's what we really love. It's like they're quick to, they're quick to grab, like quick to play. And then in the end, you end up like playing for like, maybe one, two hours and it just keeps going. You keep on like hitting those backflips, hitting those rides. Yeah, yeah. And it's been a while since like, like back in the days, there was like extreme sports was a pretty big genre, like Tony Hawk, SSX, uh, skate was there. It's like a yeah. bunch of games and it's not that, uh, it's not there out there anymore and with this we wanted like to bring extreme sports back and make it like something like different obviously we wanted to do our own take on extreme yeah. sports genre basically yeah but it, we'd yeah. love to revive it right right yeah and you were telling me earlier you know it reminds me I was just thinking about this it reminds me of those early levels and the very first few Tony Hawk games where you got those downhill portions yeah, yeah, yeah. and they quit making those and I got so bummed because I loved those downhill levels and they stopped making them but um, Plus yeah. it's also like a nostalgic like yeah. taken to all those extreme sports games, packing together what we loved about all those, right. and making like a, a new experience uh, with yeah. the centers. Yeah. Yeah, and you were telling me earlier that you and your team are from the Netherlands, yeah. and uh, we were joking because you said you're making a downhill game in one of the flattest countries in the world. Yeah. Uh, what made you guys uh, uh, interested, excited to make a downhill game? Uh, so Rul, our programmer, he's a huge skateboarding fan, and I think we all are just genuinely like into extreme sports uh, as the games back in the day but also like just just watching Red Bull Rampage for example like that game was like well we should make like a downhill mountain biking game this is like awesome why is nobody doing this yeah so yeah it comes from that basically yeah uh, and you guys have worked with downhill mountain bikers in the process of making this um, not yet but we're like in early access and we've like been approaching some some actual so I think last week we actually like put our first like actual mountain biking brand in the game it yeah. was like a, a mountain bike YouTuber who like we tried to get in touch with. So right now we're trying to get in touch with, with some of the bigger brands to make yeah. it like a bit more authentic as well. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, last question I like to ask developers is why do you make games? What drives you to do this? It's, it's a funny one. Like I used to play a lot of games, but I kind of drifted away. But like seeing like people like getting really excited playing and just like being in touch with the community with a lot of different people getting to like shows like this is like always an extra yeah so it's just like a genuine love of like yeah see putting smiles on people's faces and just making them like go get excited of like making yeah. make people cool. excited about stuff I guess that's, yeah yeah it would always drive me that's always the biggest drive for yeah me absolutely personally. well I really enjoyed playing it it's super fun and uh, yeah it's out on Xbox I mean it's out on Steam now yes yeah, Steam Early um, Access now Steam Early Access and then Xbox soon yeah Xbox Game Preview coming next month Cool. Great. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks, Ryan. It was great meeting you. My name. Yes, your name. Uh, it's Mitro Zhovtokro. Okay. It's well, a Ukrainian name. Yeah. <laughs> and what is your role on Deep Sky Derelicts? Uh, currently, well, I'm actually I'm CEO of this of Snowhound Games and. Um, uh, Currently, I'm mostly involved in business development and PR and communications, like 
also go into different game shows and showcasing the game, like here at PAX East. Yeah. But uh, like when we started developing this game, I, I took took some part, a pretty you know significant part in in designing its basic elements. Yeah. And so also took part in designing like enemies, for example, some factions in this game. Uh, also contributed to to creating some um, initial lore. Now we have a writer who is focused on that and it's his responsibility. But be, before we hired one, uh, we kind of tried to create everything, you know, collaboratively. Yeah. And, uh, so pretty much all team members contributed to pretty much everything. Even though now like people are focusing uh, mostly on what they are responsible for. Yeah, yeah. And uh, give me a, a quick explanation what is deep sky derelicts and what makes it unique what is that deep sky derelicts yeah what makes it unique unique uh, usually I say there are two things um, first is um, it's very distinct distinctive uh, visual look and feel in this art style uh, and if I w- if I was the artist the art director I would tell you so much more about that but I can only tell you that uh, our art director inspired from specific works uh, by comic artists from back from 70s and 80s um, like partly Mark, um, Mike Mignola um, I don't remember the other guy's name yeah. but anyways it, it's it's uh, very consistently following certain certain comic book art style uh, yeah. lines right and um, we really wanted to create a game which would look and feel as much as possible as a retro-futuristic science fiction comic book from, from those decades, from 70s, yeah. 80s. And we have a feeling that we, we succeeded in that end war. Um, so basically, that's, that's one thing. We, and actually, we even call this game a tactical turn-based comic book. Um, and the other one is a take on our take on, on on tactical turn-based combat and how how we use current mechanics to kind of spice it up and give it this, this kind of unique twist. Um, more specifically, um, it's not a collectible card game by no means. So um, this is just a tactical RPG which uses a card mechanic to spice things up. Yeah. to, to um, add some exciting degree of randomness in every right. combat. So those character decks, they are built from from uh, equipment, as I already explained to you before. So when you put, when you equip a new piece of gear on one of your characters, uh, cards, some specific cards are coming with that equipment, and they end up on that character's deck. Uh, and the other way to get cards on the deck is to uh, choose, choose special skills when you level up your characters. And so basically you have this uh, overall control of, of how your deck is built, but you don't know what happens when the combat starts, because you, you don't know which specific four cards will come into the character's hand at the, at the outset. Uh, of, of the, each bottle, and we believe that 
while it's still controllable, controllable, um, you you cannot be sure and you cannot exploit the same tactic over yeah. and over again uh, like we, we quite often do in these tactical turn-based games. Right, gotcha. And that's that's the second kind of special thing about uh, our specific game con concept. Yeah. So I think that should kind of cover the yeah, question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you had to narrow it down to one thing that you hope players gain from their experience with the game, what would it be? Well, it's you probably know. the feeling of... Uh, loneliness and danger and uh, being being kind of uh, lost on a on a you know rotten uh, derelict spaceship somewhere in the distant future uh, it's it's like you are relieving experiences from old science fiction movies I don't know yeah for some reason when I play this um, I have I have uh, a feeling that I, I I'm on a ship and in the alien universe somewhere or something yeah. like that and yeah that's the feeling of loneliness and being immersed into into some dangerous adventure uh, in a distant future in a sci-fi world I think yeah. that that's most people would like about this game yeah and last question why do you make games because I believe I personally I believe that people should do what they love and if you don't have enough passion for what you do you would you would never be able to achieve some you know remarkable yeah result remarkable um, accomplishment and but if you have that passion that probably have so much more chances to to achieve something great and that's why I came to this industry because I used to be a, um, a researcher, a scientific researcher at the university, and I had not as nearly much passion as I now have for what I do. Yeah. And I think that all my guys they came to this field having this passion, and they used their own specific background to to find their place and build up their you know expertise and their career further yeah that's great that's great well it's, it looks fantastic and uh i'm in, looking forward to checking out more uh, more later so thanks That's kind of what lit the fire. Okay. Yeah, because cool. uh, 2013 is uh, when like Sony and Microsoft did all their indie initiative kind of stuff. Yeah. So I met uh, my then to be account manager at Sony at uh, like the Figueroa in uh, E3. Talked to him about the game design. Ended up getting a PS4, uh, PS Vita dev kit and started working on the game. Okay. Uh, the cool. only thing is, when I started the game, I started in Game Maker, and Sony didn't support Game Maker at the time. Yeah. So I had to figure out some way to overcome that, I basically had to switch over to either Unity, Unreal, or uh, Fire Engine. Um, Unity was more supported at the time, uh, just by searching for stuff. So I went with Unity, and it was the best decision I ever made, man, because uh, their videos for learning and stuff are top-notch. Oh, like, cool. that's how I learned yeah. how to make this. Cool. Uh, yeah, I taught myself everything in Unity and C-sharp and everything. Oh, nice. Cool. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, give me the quick pitch. What is, uh, what is a dual-hand disaster? So a dual-hand disaster tracker is a split-screen, single-player, twin-stick risk-em-up uh, where you're controlling two ships at the same time. 
the purpose of the game is to get a high score. The only way to keep your score is to leave the level with it. Okay. So you cannot play till death. Death is not an option. You have to decide when to leave with your score. Okay. That's the primary goal. Cool. The devil's in the details. Yeah. yeah. So it's a kind of risk reward. Absolutely. Kind of mechanic. Yeah, that's cool. If you had to narrow it down to one thing, what do you hope players gain from their time with your game? Uh, fun. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. yeah. If it's not fun, I failed. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. yeah. And it's a really, really thin line that I'm treading there because frustration and fun can be really hard to balance. Yeah. You know I mean? Yeah. Right, right. Uh, you want to make something challenging and hard, but if it's if the frustration level is way higher, then yeah, you're you're pretty yeah. much jacked there. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, um, yeah. it seems like the type of game that would be fun, once you get the mechanics down and stuff, it'd be fun to pass the controller with your friends and watch. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. If you had that experience showing it off, like, people like to gather around it and watch uh, people risk. Yes, yeah, that colors. more than anything, dude. Yeah. It, it's one of those things where, like, you know, once everyone's kind of familiar with what's going on, you yeah. obviously start to understand the risk that's involved, right? If you're just kind of watching someone play, you're kind of like, what the hell's going on? Yeah. But when you understand, like, for example, this is tier three, when you start to see the things that are happening to the player and you know what's involved there, like that, look at his score, 46 yeah. oh, million. I have enough, I have enough. I just need to get supplies out. Exactly. He's played this before. Yes, yes. So you're trying to capture parts so that you can leave with those 45 million points. Yeah. If you don't have your parts to leave, you're kind of screwing yourself a little, and that's where every, everything just builds up. And, yeah, you get those yeah. moments of, like, whoa! <laughs> yeah, it's really rad. Yeah, that's cool. Super rad. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> last game I like to ask game designers is why do you make games? Why do you do this? Uh, I do it because I want to, and I want to push. I want to prove to myself that I can make a game. Yeah. Mostly as, I'm going to swear here, but mostly as a fuck you to everyone like, or not everyone, but as, as the establishment that tried to show me how to make a game and failed miserably. Yeah. I had to teach myself how to do this. Yeah. So I want to prove to myself that I can over anything. Yeah. Everything cool. else is secondary. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Cool. Well, I really enjoyed playing it. Thank and, you, uh, man. Even though I sucked, it was fun. No, no, so. no. Are you kidding? Yeah, it's all good, man. Yeah. That's kind of the thing. It's just... You got to stick at it. Yeah, yeah. And, and honestly, it subconsciously became a way of yeah. me showing the, the, the game as a risk em up It's kind of what I'm doing. I'm risking everything I can to do something that I want to try and accomplish. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, the, the whole idea is know when to call it quits. Yeah. Is that's it. Yeah. Totally. That's cool. what I'll leave you with, yeah. I guess. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Jason. Hey, Drew Dixon from Humans of Gaming here with Paul Arnault. Hello. And uh, you're from France, you're telling me, but you live in London now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm making uh, Picunicu the, with uh, uh, three other persons, with uh, Rémi Forcadel, who is also French, Alan Zucconi, who helped us for the code, and the music is from Kalum Bowen. Yeah. And uh, yeah, give me a quick overview. What is Picunicu and what makes it unique? The title Picunicu means uh, picnic in uh, Japanese. And we chose this title because a picnic is something everybody loves, very accessible, but it's also something who never um, succeeds like what you were expecting. There's all time surprises. 
So it's what we are trying to do with Piconico. Yeah, and so it's kind of a platformer, but there's also some co-op elements, um, and it's really, the movement in the game is what struck me initially. The movement is really unique, whereas in a lot of platformers, you go for a really smooth, free-flowing sort of like uh, movement style, but the movement in the game is really goofy and awkward. Uh, what what drove you to make some uh, you know a game like this where there's platforming elements, but it's a it's a awkward, stilted, fun, goofy movement. But what uh, we are trying with Pikuniku is to make a game with uh, very accessible and uh, with not skill based. So it's not uh, to be becoming good at the game because we'll not be able to become good at the game because this goofy movement. So it's like the opposite of a Super Meat Boy or Celeste. What we are trying to do is more uh, an invitation for exploration and thinking about what I can do with the world, how can I socialize, how I can solve a puzzle. But it's not about your skill to, uh, to, um, to improve. Uh, the character is not evolving. There is not a, a learning curve in the game. Yeah. So we are trying to fighting the, what normally a puzzle game do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's great. I love that approach because you're right, it's so much more accessible than a lot, like like Celeste or Super Me Boy or something, where you really have to be focused and have some vocabulary of how to play those games. Um, if you had to narrow down to one thing, what do you hope players gain from their experience playing Piku Niku? I think what I, I, I will love first is that they love while playing. I think it's one of the most important things. But also when they play co-op, it's a lot about communication. And um, we can say it's true for most of the um, co-op game, right? To, uh, you need to talk with the other player. But here at the same time, um, you need to use and play with the physics. A so no, no, lot of things don't, um, are not like what you expect. Yeah, there is a lot of emergency. And this emergency creates fun. So it's like uh, uh, we don't try to be uh, perfect in anything, but to surprise the player of what he's doing himself. I'm sure it makes sense. Let me know if you don't. Yeah, so you hope players are surprised by what they find. Exactly. Yeah. So the replayability is inside this surprise. Like, for example, one of my favorite games is Nobby Dobby Boy, but like the mobile version, not the PS4 version. Yeah. Uh, because it's just a, a physics playground. Yeah. And you can do exactly the same thing 200 time, it will all time be different, is what yeah. we are trying to do with uh, Piku Niku. Yeah. And how does that work in the, the co-op? Is, is there a, are there competitive elements of the co-op, or is the co-op really just exploring uh, together? There is one anti-race, where we can say, okay, it's uh, not cooperative, but it's not competitive, because all the level design is so uh, uh, weird, somehow, like yeah. it make it's, it's a non-race. So you can try to be, okay, I'm winning, but without the other player, you will never go to the finish line, to the real finish line. Yeah, yeah. So you have to wait for them or help them to get to the finish line. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, cool. Uh, and last question I like to ask designers, uh, why do you make games? What drives you to make games? I think what drives me to make games is to share happiness. Um, I studied fine arts at the beginning, and what I, if I stop to work for making contemporary art, the main reason why I don't want to make something for the elites, but I want to make something for the people, like very popular. Uh, and I think like uh, video games is uh, something who is artistic and at the same time um, allow to talk with, uh, uh, to share an experience with a kid of five years old or with someone of 60 years old. And that's what I found wonderful in the game. And it's a, in some terms of price, it's accessible. 
much more than contemporary art, for example. Yeah, yeah that's cool. Well, I really enjoyed looking at it. It looks super fun, and uh, I love the aesthetic, the look of it. Uh, yeah, I can't wait to check it out. Okay. So, yeah, thanks, Thank Arno. Yeah. Thank you very much. So Dan Singleton, uh, okay. And uh, what is your role with uh, with Memories of Mars? Game designer. Okay. Game designer with Memories of Mars. Plus doing some law. Uh, we have law in the game and basic concepts. Also community feedback and stuff like this and community hosting events. Yeah. How long have you guys been working on the game? Oh, uh, we started uh, January earlier of this year. It got a reboot. There was a, like an earlier version of Mars. We kind of repivoted what we wanted to do. We weren't so happy, so we rebooted January. So I would say, honestly, January is how long the game's been worked on. Okay, cool. And where are you and your team from? Germany. Limbic is based in Germany, so we're based in a, pla- a little village called Langen, about 10 minutes away from Frankfurt. Okay, cool. And how did you get into game design? Oh, how did I get into game design? Well, I absolutely love games, obviously, as most people do. I uh, did my own sort of Twitch stuff. I did my own YouTube stuff. I built my own personal profile and then went into the game design industry, basically just applied for jobs. Previously, I was in the army, so I had a big, big career switch and I did a lot of security work and then switched out. Gaming has always been my passion, so I came in and uh, it worked out. Yeah, that's cool. And uh, tell me, give me like the quick pitch. What is Memories of Mars? Absolutely. So Memories of Mars is an open world sandbox survival game. 64 players, commitment at service at launch, looking to scale up if we can do. Map will be 12 kilometers. It's full loot. There'll be a lot of base building, a lot of base raiding, and a lot of uh, what we call our flop events. This is kind of similar to Battle Royale games. They shrink the map. This forces action. In our game, we turn on random events in random locations. This is how you get the best in-game currency. Disclaimer, no microtransactions in our game. So uh, this is how you get the in-game currency, and this is where all are going to drive the players for a lot of uh, combat. Otherwise, typical survival games, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel where we don't need to. So if you played Rust, the base building is kind of similar, you know, the same sort of mechanic or like yeah. that. We don't want to reinvent the wheel where we don't need to, so yeah, I would say open, wo- open world sandbox survival game is yeah. how you So if you're, if you're not interested in getting in those big firefights, is, uh, y- you can just kind of hang out on the fringes and... Absolutely. Absolutely. So, a uh, cool thing with Mars is all of our AI is, uh, how would I best put it, is designed. In that sense, we don't have any zombies. So, our AI will actively look to flank you. It has lots of different abilities that you don't see. In, so, uh, for example, you might have seen like the scuttlers that can put like an acid puddle on the floor. Different enemies will jump at you and that sort of stuff. So, if you're not that interested in PvP or you're just not a PvP player, the AI, the PvE, is just as much of a enemy for you as well. So, you'd be able to jump in on that. That's cool. If you had to narrow it down to one thing, what do you hope players gain from their experience with Memories of Mars? Honestly, fun. I think games, sometimes games can become a bit convoluted. People can add features on features on features. Try and We just want people to have fun, really. that that I would say I just want people to have fun. Get in there. If you like PvP, you've got a lot of PvP. If you like PvE, you've got a lot of PvE. You can do a bit of both. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Just as long as you have fun. I think that's the core of all games, to be honest with you. Cool. Yeah, and one last question I like to ask designers. What what drives you to make games? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, and uh, previously of what we just said, I think some games have become a little bit convoluted. Uh, and really, I just want to design a game that's going to be very fun, basically. That's that's honestly my core philosophy. If you don't have fun, what's, what's the point of it being in the game? You know, Change it, switch it until people have fun. And if people have fun... I've achieved my goal essentially just that's really the goal cool awesome well thanks so much Um, and
like the idea of being able to sit down and like have a full experience when I lose. Yeah. You know, like that's what I loved about Dwarf Fortress. Like eventually you get to the end and like losing is fun. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and like you had a whole experience. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to capture that in a shorter container. Right. Um, but then also when you win, I don't want it to take you four hours. Yeah, yeah. Right? I want it to be a similar kind of you know commitment. Right. Um, so yeah, that's, it's that's interesting because like like I'm married and I have three kids, and so like. Um, there's some games I just don't even pick up because yeah. I know like it's not going to be a satisfying experience because I'm going to get interrupted and like it's like the idea of a game that's 30 minutes and it, you had a complete like experience and you can do that again tomorrow if you want yeah. but like you won't feel bad about it being over necessarily like that's really appealing to me like on a personal level you know yeah yeah i feel that i, I mean and that's kind of what i was pushing towards right i mean it, it generally takes players about 10 hours of play time before yeah. they get good enough and they rock it enough to be able to win yeah but they have plenty of you know small sessions under their belt by then right? yeah which is you know which is fine you know i want them to most players will never get to the end yeah and you know as, as game developers we kind of have to realize that like how do you give them a good experience before yeah that? yeah full uh Full Newtonian physics under the hood. I mean, it's a full deep sim, which is kind of hard to teach, right? Yeah. Um, that's, you know, tooltips everywhere. Um, uh, and, you know, you, you're stuck to this perspective of an AI. You are yeah. just a computer at the end of the day. Uh, and as smart as you may be, and as aware as you might be, and as fast as you might be, because you pause time, whatever. Um, at the end of the day, you, you're very limited in how much you can know or see. So yeah. you can tell, I mean, you're in the void of space. You can tell kind of which direction you are heading, but it never looks different, mm -hmm. right? So you have that on course, on top, kind of tells you how on track you are. Okay, um, yeah. And takes that, whole, takes that whole physics simulation that's under the hood and just presents it to you kind of yeah. in, like with a clue. Okay. So. Do you have an interest in Newtonian physics? Is that like a personal interest of yours? Uh, I well, I'm super into like space travel. I, okay. I'm a huge sci-fi nerd. So okay. uh, for me, like playing space games and stuff like that, it was always one of those things where it's like, wait, that's not how space travel works. Like, yeah. You don't just stop when you turn off the engines. You can drift. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I kind of mitigate that with like uh, when you're drifting, like you can go a little off course. Like you're not you're not on the curved path. You're on the straight path. So you do. Lose a little speed as you correct over time, but you never run out. Like you can drift all the way there. Okay. Um, you know, so you know, uh, for me it was always how do I create something that is both representative of what we might see space travel to Mars look like in 30 years. Um, you know, how do how do we you know what systems are involved, what designs are involved, what's the human experience like? You know, when yeah. we get to that point. Um, and that was a lot of my inspiration going into this, uh, you know, and combined with everything sci-fi. I mean, all the names in the game that are randomly generated are, uh, you know, old sci-fi references that, you know, a favorite ideas yeah. that I have. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I was one of those people who signed up to go to Mars on the oh, one-way really? trip. Like On the what? On the one-way trip. You oh, heard really? of Mars 1? I mean, it ended up, it's probably going to fall through that, you know, people are like, oh, it's a scam. But I applied. I was yeah. like... This sounds like an experience of like yeah. no one gets to do this, right? Yeah. Um, so I was I'm very excited by like what the future of humanity looks like. So I made a very dismal game about what the future of humanity <laughs> might look like. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's encouraging. Yeah. Well, what do you hope players gain from their experience? Like, if you had to narrow it down to one thing, the players gain from their time with your game, what would it be? I mean, I have so many competing goals. I guess I, as as the solo dev, like. 
I want people to look at the systems and I want them to love like the interaction and see the emergence that kind of happens in it. But you know, as the writer, I want people to go, oh hey, like it opened up my mind to another perspective. Like I, I actually felt like I was an artificial intelligence. And what does that mean to me as a human? Yeah. You know, what does that mean to me? How do we treat other sentient beings, right? Yeah. Um, you know, as an artist, I want them to go, oh look at this novel way that I did things, right? It's pixel art, but off, right? You know, it's yeah. through, as if through a CRT. Yeah. Um, you know, all uh, too many, too many. Uh, I, at the end of the day, what I want people to get is both a, a kind of a hope for what what the future might look like, and what and space travel and like excitement about science, right? Yeah. Um, like I took a lot of liberties with the fiction of this. You know, it's not strictly scientific. But it's, yeah. it's based on a lot of what we think things could be like, right? Um, as I understand it as an artist, right? Uh, so, you know, I, it, to me, it's, it's, you know, share my love of space and make it a fun experience that is brutal and can appeal to, you know, the older gamer like us, you know, um, who, you know, can only has bite, you know, bite-sized time to, to tackle it. I don't know. I think there's so much... There's so much energy behind travel to Mars nowadays, right? Like, you know, Elon Musk is picking it up. It's all of a sudden like a thing. Um, and, and I'm excited to kind of be a part of almost the cultural history. I mean, I hope one day to be a part of the cultural history of like kind of the thought process that gets us there, right? Kind of like the inspiration, you know, build more momentum in society for that kind of thing to happen. Uh, yeah, that's cool. And uh, how did you get into making games? Oh, man. So I started as a kid, uh, as most of us do, um, just like making like card games and board games. Um, but I didn't start getting serious about it until after college. I got my degree in English. Yeah. Um, and I realized, what am I doing? I have no idea what I want to do. And I went back to my old school notebooks. And as I flipped through them, I realized I have more doodles and game designs in my notebooks than I do notes. So yeah. <laughs> I'm like, maybe I should try doing this. Yeah. Uh, and I just kind of dove in. Um, I'm self-taught on basically everything. Yeah. Uh, I worked in mobile for a few years with a with a business partner, and uh, you know, and I, I dabbled in board games, and that was about six years ago. And then uh, I decided at one point we had a falling out as happens with business partners sometimes. All right, sure. And uh, yeah. So tell me your names and your roles with SteamWorld Dig 2. Yeah, I'm Julius, the community manager at Image Inform. Okay. And I'm Polina, and I work with influencers. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And uh, so, yeah, give me the quick pitch of SteamWorld Dig 2. What is it? What makes it unique? Yeah, it's a platform mining adventure. Uh, it's kind of a mix of Dig Dug and Super Metroid in a really, really fun, uh, quirky, steampunk, western kind of setting. Yeah. What is unique about the new game versus the first SteamWorld dig? Uh, I'd say it's much bigger uh, and better in many ways. Um, dig 1 was um, very large portions of the game were procedurally generated. Yeah. Uh, and this one is handcrafted completely. So it, everything is intentional as yeah. opposed to be where it is. Yeah. Um, so we, and what that means is that we can sort of, we can tailor the experience to our liking, uh, yeah. and make sure that every player has, you know, the same, not the same experience, but you know, the same foundation. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. 
And uh, if you had to narrow it down to one thing that you hope players gain from their experience playing SteamWorld Dig 2, what would it be? Oh, that's big. What do you think, Paulina? Well, um, yeah, you know I like achievements and 100% in games. So again, I have to. I, I'm going with like the finding all the secrets. Yeah. So if you're like a collector, sort of, you know, collecting yeah. mind, that's something that you would probably like about okay. Steamboat Dig Two. Yeah. Cool. And, uh, Anything um, to add to that? Um, yeah, I just want to emphasize how how many secrets there are. <laughs> yeah. There's a ton of secrets. So um, make sure if you play the game, make sure to like look everywhere, search every nook and cranny for treasures, um, hidden puzzles, and challenges and stuff like that. Yeah, it's yeah. really really fun. Cool. And uh, how did you guys get into game development? Um, I uh, I started out as a games journalist, uh, and then I studied marketing and communications, and uh, got an inter and what was it? I got an internship at Image Forum during my uh, first year, uh, part-time, and I just took it from there. Yeah, cool. Uh, and I, I've always been playing games, but it wasn't until a, a couple of years ago that I figured out I could also work with it. So uh, I got into the industry when I, I first worked as IT support, and I figured there must be something more giving, more yeah, fun yeah. to work with. And so I studied business school and IT some more and then I got into image and form as well. Yeah. Uh, and last question I like to ask is, is why do you make games? What drives you to do this? The thing is, um, I don't make any games personally, but uh, our team is incredibly focused on tight gameplay and, and just a polished experience. And I think they also want to like recreate some of their favorite moments. Uh, if you look at Heist and Dig 2, uh, and dig one as well. It's like we've, we've, taken, we've taken our favorite bits of different genres, like yeah. XCOM and Worms for Heist, and Super Metroid Dig Dug, um, or, and Motherload, uh, for example, um, yeah. and just fused them together to make something cool. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, no, it's just about the experience, I guess, for everyone who's playing them to get away from you know the real world for a while yeah. and just uh, see a different world and a different life and yeah. live new things so yeah okay. all right and uh adam de rocha is it right. yep <laughs> okay i said that right and where are you from adam uh, so from like london england okay cool is that where you grew up yeah, pretty much around there, like just outside London. It's easier to say London. Cause yeah, yeah. <laughs> How did you get into uh, making games? Um, so I just got him through my brother. Um, they, he was in the original team who made the the very first cube. So that was in about 2011. Actually started as a student project. So there were three members: uh, John Savory, Dave Hall, and my brother Dan, Dan DeRosha. Um, so they were fresh out of university. It was it was their like final project in uni. And they basically just got a lot of industry influence who, these people, these industry folk who came and told them, you've got something really good here, why don't you look at going indie? And they didn't really know what indie was, they were like, what's this indie, you know, they thought they were just going to do the course, get into like a job in a big studio. Yeah. So they went out and they pitched for funding, they were able to get funding from Indie Fund, uh, which is like a bunch of veteran, um, um, you know, games, games folk who invested in them. They were able to make that game and it came out in about 2011, um, early 2012. And then within, I think, three days, they were able to pay back the entire investment 
and go on, you know, to um, build this company, Toxic Games, and then eventually, you know, years later, we've come and just really up the production. That means, you know, I've been taken on board and a lot of others, we've had an art director being taken on board, environment artist, a writer and producer, and now it's grown into this large studio and then we're able to make, um, you know, full production uh, of this game, which is really up the production of this game. Where, I'm curious about where you got the name Toxic Games because I think of like, there's like toxicity in this industry that, you know, like, I just thought that's an interesting name. I'm curious. Um, I remember asking the guys like the roots of that and I think uh, it didn't really come out of anything spectacular. I think okay. it was it was just a word. It was just the original logo actually had like a like a, a flask or a beaker in um, chemistry set and it was pouring over the words and it sort of eroded the words but there's no there's no amazing yeah, story yeah. behind it <laughs> yeah. yeah because i think you're i mean cube 2 is sort of the opposite of, of toxic it's a very um like satisfying puzzle game uh describe cube 2 like a quick pitch what is it what makes it unique okay cube 2 is a first person puzzle adventure game um Really what makes it unique is its core mechanic. So you use these special gloves and you're able to basically learn different abilities, different colors. You then place them in the environment and use these different colors and combinations of these colors in order to solve puzzles in the environment. And, you know, solving these puzzles eventually guides you through these levels. Um, You're able to sort of like escape the room type puzzles and platformers. There's a mix, physics-based puzzles, a lot of different conundrums. Um, and eventually you, you go through the through the level, yeah. And all this while you're sort of trying to figure out why you're in this space and there's a story and... Right, so the story is basically you're a stranded archaeologist. Your name is uh, Amelia Cross. You wake up on this strange planet. You sort of um, don't know why you're there, but you know it looks it looks sort of obscure, very, very sort of um, alien-like. You don't know why you're there. You then get contacted by a... Um, another survivor who's um, called Emma now she contacts you so I have to figure out whether you can trust her and she wants to rendezvous with you so it's a case of trying to find her you know fight for your survival and make your way home and in order to find her you have to solve these puzzles and travel through this it's we call it the, the cube structure so you go through this massive structure finding your way um, we have a lot of diverse environments in this game actually the first game was very much white pa- like paneled chambers sort of test chambers just white paneled rooms very basic and are largely down to you know they didn't have an art team in the first game so we've been fortunate enough you know to bring on an art team and if you look at the game you can see how sort of stunning it is it's made in Unreal Engine 4 and there's different environments which makes the journey a lot more nicer and it keeps it fresh as well yeah yeah if you had to narrow it down to one thing what do you hope players gain from their experience playing Cube 2 I just want them to feel, I think, when they solve a puzzle, feel smart. And it's rewarding for them to be able to walk in. You know, the first game didn't have much guidance, but because the colors were already in the environment, it meant that they would walk in and sort of be guided by what colors they could use. Now you walk into a room and they're all white paneled. Um, the, the, the squares on the ground are white. And so you have to select from your inventory exactly what colors to use. So there's no guidance. You walk into a room and you have to sort of figure out from scratch. Yeah. So once you do, and once you solve the puzzle, I think the player generally feels, you know, it's more rewarding when you solve it because yeah. you've gone through the process yourself. A lot of trial and error. And that's ultimately what we were trying to achieve with that mechanic was, you know, give, give a lot of power back to the player, which, you know. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and uh, last question, why do you make games? What drives you to do this? It's just, it's just a passion for being huge gamers ourselves. We love, you know, to sit down and play a game ourselves. Being influenced by a lot of great games, especially in the puzzle genre. The Witness, a big fan of that. Um, yeah. Played some really good games in the past, and obviously, you know, people draw comparisons to Portal. I think that will, just because, you know, with, with the gloves and the colors, that's um, a normal comparison we get. But it's purely out of a place of passion. You know, we, um, we created a really cool community with the first game, and we got that feedback. We took it on board. We said, hey, you guys like the first game. What would you like to see in the second one? What were your favorite puzzles? Um, where did we go wrong? What, what would you like to see avoided? What would you like to see more of? And we got a huge, you know, a nice community that came back with a lot of great feedback. One of the things was that, you know, um, you walked into a room, you played a few puzzles, like one particular mechanic, for instance, like magnets, and this is the first game, and then you'd move on and you'd never see that mechanic again. So what we wanted to do was cut out a lot of, just trim the fat, cut out a lot of different mechanics and puzzles and hone it down. So now when you're doing the magnets, you play an array of different, um, basically a huge load of different puzzles with the magnet mechanic, and you really get to explore it, something that we weren't able to do in the first game. Yeah. And that came from community feedback, which is great that yeah. we listen to what they want to do and put it in the game and yeah. series. So. That's cool, because I think a lot of game designers, not a lot, but there are certainly game designers that don't have a great relationship with the community that plays your game, but it sounds like you've got a, like, healthy and helpful relationship with your community. How did that come about? Um, I mean, I do the community management, so there's a lot of, you know, back and forth. With, I think Steam forums, obviously nowadays with social media, you can you can just reach out and get um, feedback instantly. We have a really cool, like, hardcore fan base, you know, first-person puzzlers. The genre is quite strong. It's, you know, people love a good puzzle game. Or if they're into a puzzle game, you know, there's not that many coming out nowadays. So it was just born out of a, you know, sort of a feedback, really. We did, like, DLC as well, reaching out and saying, now you've played the main game, what other little things would, would you be interested in? Yeah. Um, I'm sure how it came about. It was just reaching out and just, yeah. just um, let, you know, in one manner it was letting the fans know that there was a sequel coming. Yeah. And because the game had come out, you know, several, about five or six years ago now, trying to re-engage with that community. But we've yeah. built, built it up, built it up, and now getting their feedback, um, listening to what they like. And we love the community interactions, you know, when they post some of their screenshots and their videos and their walkthroughs, it's better than some of the screenshots that we can capture. It's really nice to see, yeah. Yeah, nice, and, yeah. awesome. Cool. Well, yeah, I really enjoyed checking it out. Thanks so much. My name is Matt Rhodes. Yeah, and you are the lead designer. Lead designer, cool. For Banner uh, uh, Saga. And you're, I think I met, um, I interviewed one of your partners on the. Uh, Arnie or John, maybe? I think Arnie, uh, what does Arnie do? Arnie is our art director? Yes, I met him at a convention and interviewed him one time. So okay, anyway, yeah. That's cool, yeah. Anyway, so. Um, yeah, give me kind of the the pitch about Banner Saga Three. What's what's new? What's what's unique uh, about the new game? So we've evolved the combat a lot. Uh, I I feel like it's some of our best, most interesting battles that we've ever had in the series. Uh, ideally, I really want it to be something where people coming from the previous two games feel like it's familiar. We haven't you know just overhauled the entire system, but we've brought in a lot of 
new stuff that kind of will uh, really appeal to people and make them kind of rethink their strategies and have to change things up a little. So we have the uh, wave battles where uh, you have a chance to, you have a turn counter and then you have a chance to uh, bring in new characters from your roster between waves. We have uh, the Volca Spear, which replaces the uh, Warhorn in the darkness and uh, gives a much more aggressive kind of style to the to the fighting in the darkness. Uh, we have some uh, new playable characters, including Juno for the first time, uh, Ubin, he was one of our stretch goals from our Kickstarter, and he's now playable. They're both longtime members of the, or parts of the story that are now playable in, in battles as well. We have some new characters, playable Dredge. Dredge have been uh, an adversary of the of the player for a long time, and now uh, you'll get to use a lot of the same abilities that they've been using against you in battles. You'll be able to use them uh, in in battle yourself. Uh, we have a brand new character, Alfren, who is a hedge mender. She's a self-taught uh, spell weaver, and she uh, is kind of Juno's opposite number uh, in terms of the story. And she's a great character. She's a lot of fun to play. So I'm really excited. Uh, beyond just sort of the battles, though, I think it's super exciting that we're kind of finishing off the trilogy. All the decisions, all the choices that players have been making from the first game to the second game to this one, uh, they have a huge impact on what the ending looks like for individual players. And I think that, well, I hope, certainly, yeah. that players are going to really feel like the ending that they get makes sense. It feels like it organically comes out of their, their play yeah. and that it really feels like the end of their saga. Yeah, that's cool. And uh, you guys, it seems like you guys were one of the first uh, games that got a lot of traction on Kickstarter and kind of, um, you know, I think set, set a standard in a way for a lot of other games who are trying to make it on Kickstarter and things. Yeah. What's, that, what's that experience been like for you to kind of have gone from, uh, you know, working on other games to then doing really your own project and doing it on Kickstarter and, and yeah, achieving some pretty impressive results, I think. Yeah, I mean, the first Kickstarter, I was not a part of the company for the first Kickstarter, but it really did. It set uh, a bar that everyone else really was kind of shooting for at that point. Um, and it kind of established what was possible, you know, that indies could break free of some of the, you know, large publisher kind of mandates and really achieve a level of creative freedom that is super exciting. Um, being indie is fantastic. It's scary, <laughs> but you know we have no one but ourselves to blame for yeah. our success or our failure. Yeah. Uh, and you wear I, a lot of hats. Yeah, uh, exactly. You do a lot of work that people don't know about. I think. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Everyone has to be really kind of multitasking, and as you say, wear a lot of hats. Uh, no one is going to kind of pick up slack if uh, if uh, if we don't do it ourselves. That being said, I mean, Kickstarter, it was a great experience. It really helped us build a community. I think uh, when we did the second game, we self-funded it. And uh, we let our community kind of lie fallow a little bit. And in retrospect, we kind of regretted it, which is one of the reasons that we did a Kickstarter again for the third game, is it's not that we couldn't have kind of built the core game that, you know, yeah. without that. But 
first of all, obviously, it let us have some stretch goals. It let us kind of extend our ambitions for the third game. But beyond that, it really let us kind of reconnect with that community. And it's just, we feel like it's been so beneficial in terms of our creative process to have all these voices, you know, that love the game that we can reach out to for uh, their insights, kind of how do you play it, uh, what are your kind of feelings about it when you play, and all that has been incredibly helpful to us. Yeah, occasionally it seems like in in the industry, like, some games end up having something of an adversarial relationship with their community, but you guys have managed to seem to have like a what seems to me to be overwhelmingly positive and helpful relationship. How have you all managed that? I don't know. <laughs> Our community is amazing. I mean, they are some of the most helpful, friendly. I, I, I just, we got lucky, I think. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's something about the style of game that it attracts kind of an older, more uh, experienced type of uh community member but i i honestly don't know it's just but we are so lucky and we we have a community manager who kind of is is constantly keeping us in the loop with what's going on with them but yes we are we are so lucky to have such a positive and constructive uh community to kind of back us up yeah that's cool if you had to narrow it down to one thing that you hope people will gain maybe not just from the third game but but from their overall experience playing the trilogy what would it be you know, I, I think that for a lot of people, you know, the feedback that we get is that it's an, a really emotional experience for them, that they build these connections with characters who may live, who may die. Um, and I hope that when they get to the end of the saga, that it really feels like it was theirs. And it really feels like the choices that they made and the, uh, the journey that they went on was very much... Uh, it comprised the you know, their experience in a way that was meaningful all the way through the end. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. And uh, last question I like to ask designers is, why do you make games? What drives you to do this? You know, if I could do anything else, I would. Uh, I I think it's a, I mean, I love games. I mean, that's why I got into the industry, yeah. and it's, it's certainly the thing that keeps me in it. I mean, I've tried leaving the industry and doing other things for a little while and I always come back to it because it's it's where my passion lies and I feel so lucky that I can do the thing that I am most passionate about and most excited to be doing. Yeah, awesome. Well, I really enjoyed seeing the, the new game and yeah, thanks I'm for excited to check it out. I know, do you have a release date for the third game? Summer 2018 is our release date currently. We will be announcing something more specific soon, but uh, summer 2018. Cool. And, uh, and also, you've got the first two games coming to Switch. Yes. And what's the window on those? So, uh, Banner Saga 1 will be out soon. Uh, Banner Saga 2 will be out shortly after that, and then Banner Saga 3 will be out on Switch within the same general release window as it will be out on Mac, PC, uh, Xbox, and PS4. Those other four will be out simultaneously, but Switch may miss the simultaneous window a little bit, but we're just, we're not announcing it exactly yet because we're not, we haven't gone through lot check with Nintendo before, so we're kind of, you know, feeling it out, but around the same time. Great, awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening to Humans of Gaming. This was part two of a three-part series of game designer interviews. 
rapid fire interviews. And uh, yeah, I, I hope you really enjoyed it. Uh, be sure to go rate and review our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or follow us on, on Spotify. Uh, also, please, please, please go and tell your friends about this podcast, your friends, your family members, your coworkers. Spread the word on, on Twitter, Facebook, iTunes, uh, Instagram, wherever you inhabit online. We would really appreciate it. And please go check out the Free Play Podcast. It's another one of the podcasts on the Love Thy Nerd Podcast Network. You'll really enjoy it. Uh, I know you will. Go check that one out. Rate and review that one as well. Um, also, would encourage you to search for Love Thy Nerd on Facebook if you haven't already. And, uh, yeah, follow us if you want to follow what's going on in Love Thy Nerd. Um, would love for you to go follow us there. If you have any questions or comments or concerns about about Humans of Gaming or Love Thy Nerd, feel free to shoot those to me, Drew, at lovethynerd.com. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's DrewDixon82. And uh, that's it for this episode of Humans of Gaming. Look for part three of these developer, these designer interviews to come out very soon. 